Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. Hello, I'm Bob Hamilton, Professor of Eurasian Studies at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. In national security circles, Russia has been a hot topic for the past few years. We've been hearing a lot about Russia's ambitions, strategy, and tactics, and the Russian relationship with the United States is a challenging but important one to manage. Today, I'm pleased to introduce someone with deep experience and expertise in understanding and managing this relationship. I'm joined by Ambassador John Teft a career foreign service officer who served as U.S. Ambassador to Lithuania, Georgia, Ukraine, and most recently Russia. He was serving in Georgia during the 2008 Russia-Georgia War. He left Ukraine in the fall of 2013, only months before the beginning of the Maidan protests, and he served in Russia during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. So he hasn't had a simple or quiet assignment in a long time. Ambassador Teff, welcome to the War Room, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Bob, thanks very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, bring back many memories of our service together in Georgia uh, back in uh, 2006 to 2008. Uh, I'm uh, now retired and uh, work as a fellow at the Rand Corporation, but I keep, uh, keep a strong interest in Russia and all of the other countries around it. So I'm glad to have a chance to, to be here and talk to you about that today. Thank you, sir. You have some up-close and personal experience with Russian foreign policy, both from the perspective of seeing how that policy is made in Moscow and how it is carried out abroad. Looking at the wars in Georgia and Ukraine, what do they tell us about how Russia sees the world and how it defines its interests, both in what it calls the near abroad and in its relationship with the West? I think the Russian policy has changed uh, substantially under President Putin, particularly since 2007. Uh, he was then uh, becoming the prime minister, but he gave a very famous speech at the uh, Munich Security Conference, which uh, he was very critical of the United States. And most, uh, I think, historians and most of the experts on Russia date uh, the change in his attitude toward the United States from that period. I think it's gotten more pronounced in its opposition, particularly since he was reelected to a third term back in 2012. And of course, once the invasion of Ukraine took place uh, and then subsequent sanctions were imposed by the West, we've had a very, very strained and very, very difficult relationship. Sir, as you know, NATO stated in its 2008 summit communique that both Georgia and Ukraine would become members of the alliance, though it didn't set a date for their accession. What do you see as the future of the relationship of those countries with NATO, given that Russia has intervened militarily in both countries since NATO made its statement on their future membership? Well, I think that uh, Mr. Putin uh, obviously sees NATO uh, as an enemy. I, I, for one, have always thought that NATO is not a threat to Russia at all. Uh, I think NATO has been the one of the fundamental points uh, to cast the U.S. and the Western Europe in, in a kind of negative uh, light. Uh, NATO doesn't threaten, uh, and, and you know, even when we've increased our forces as we did after the invasion of Ukraine, you know, it's a defensive posture, and the forces that have been set, set up in the Baltic countries and in Poland, they're there to be able to protect those countries from an invasion and not from any kind of, uh, not in, with any purpose to go ahead and uh, do anything offensive. 
you know, right now, I think the political situation in the world is such that, um, you know, Georgia and Ukraine are not going to become members of NATO. And that's partly for view because of Western politicians and not just Russia. But, you know, I, I'm still one who believes in the, the, the goal of Europe whole, free, and at peace, which the late President George H.W. Bush outlined uh, in 1991. I've, I've been doing some research lately. I'm trying to prepare something of a memoir. And you can see that that period was such a, a fertile period for kind of conceiving how we would deal with both Russia and the countries of the, the former Soviet Union. And Georgia and Ukraine uh, were critical countries in that sense. And Putin has pushed back against those. But we've wanted to have a good relationship with them. Putin, I think, wants to stop us from having that kind of relationship. But I think now's the time for strategic patience and perseverance and keeping moving forward here. I'm encouraged by the progress that the Ukrainian and Georgian forces have made in their training. Uh, you were a part of that way back when, when we were in Georgia. And uh, the quality of those troops, uh, whether they are defending Ukraine as the, as the Ukrainian troops are now, or uh, in the Georgian case, uh, serving with distinction in Afghanistan, uh, I think this shows uh, that this can be done. Uh, the last point I would make is that I think that uh, a European security arrangement uh, with these countries in NATO is not a threat to Russia. I was the uh, charge, uh, the, the ambassador, uh, filling in for the ambassador in 1997 between uh, when we, Ambassador Pickering had left and Ambassador Collins had arrived. And so I was at the side of Madame, Madeleine Albright, our Secretary of State, when she negotiated the NATO-Russia founding act uh, with uh, former Foreign Minister Primakov. And I, she bent over backwards to try to accommodate Russian concerns, to try to uh, get them engaged with NATO, to try to move forward on the Partnership for Peace, which had been in place for some time, and to try to find a way so that we could all work together and have a unified conception and buy-in to uh, uh, this European security structure that we were trying to, to build. Mr. Putin has decided he does not want to be a part of that. Do you think there was a way to enlarge NATO without... Uh, provoking Russia or without engendering some sort of conflict with Russia of the type that we now find ourselves in? Could we have enlarged NATO uh, and somehow brought Russia along uh, in, in either a special partnership with the alliance or, you know, someday as a prospective member? Well, I think that's what Mrs. Albright tried to do. She tried to find a way for the Russians to work uh, with uh, NATO. Uh, remember, we set up an office at NATO. Uh, we, was, we were very transparent about what NATO was about. I was there not only with her, but uh, Dick Myers, who was at that time a lieutenant general before he became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he had meetings with uh, the Russian military uh, members of the Russian delegation and explained a lot of the technical issues about NATO and how the forces were configured and how uh, defensive uh, air patrols operated. Anyway, they understood this very clearly. I think the Russian elite, though, and, and this is uh, personified by Mr. Putin, really does not want to be a part of that. Now, there's another part, a component to this, and that's the domestic component in Russia. Russia has needed, and you can go way back into Stalin and others, even when we've had good relationships, the Americans have to be the enemy somehow. The Americans have to be the big bad guys from the outside. And uh, it's pretty hard, even when you had... Uh, progress, as we did say when President Obama and 
President Medvedev signed the uh, the New Start agreement back in 2010. Even then, we had this propaganda coming out, making the Americans look like the great boogeyman. I think we've got to. Russia has to get past that, and I I retain hope uh, that you know we can build a better relationship. I've not given up on this, and as I said, I think strategic patience is the key at this particular point for the United States and strong defense and pushback where necessary. Mm-hmm. Since you brought up uh, Russian perceptions of the United States, uh, you were in Moscow during the U.S. presidential election of 2016. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an idea of how the Russian government followed the U.S. election, how the Russian political elite saw the U.S. election, and what about ordinary Russians and the Russian media? Uh, What were their attitudes toward the election? Well, let me state from the outset that uh, one of the things that I did as the ambassador was to make clear to all of the Americans there that I viewed the uh, Hatch Act, which is the, the law that governs uh, the participation of U.S. government employees in elections, I, I consider that to be an important part, even though we were abroad. So the United States embassy personnel did not have uh, relationships with any of the uh, uh, people who we knew now know uh, traveled there. We knew when General Flynn went and attended the famous dinner with uh, Vladimir Putin, and we knew when Carter Page came. He spoke, I think, to the American Chamber of Commerce. But they did not ask for meetings. They did not ask for our help. And and we didn't offer. And I I would say I would have done the same thing uh, for the Democratic side had we had uh, senior-level people coming from uh, the Democratic Party, from Hillary Clinton's campaign. So in that sense, we kept track of what was going on. But much of the information that we read in the newspapers today that's come out as a result of the Mueller investigation and others, that's as much news to me as it is to most Americans. Uh, That said, I think the Russians were enormously interested in how that campaign came out. Um, There was intense interest, and I found that I got questions about this whenever I traveled around Russia, and my wife and I traveled a lot. There were lots of questions about Hillary. Would she be the first female president? And then there was fascination with Trump. Would President Trump be better for Russia? You know, because by then we'd already had gotten into... uh, the sanctions and uh, the relationship uh, was was quite strained, obviously. Uh, so there was a lot of interest, and we talked to a lot of people. They followed it intently, but uh, a lot of the stuff that are now is now part of investigation is not something that we engaged in. So I'd like to move from the uh, U.S. election in 2016 to the broader U.S.-Russia relationship, which seems to be frozen in crisis since at least 2014 in the events of. Uh, in in Crimea and eastern Ukraine, arguably even since before then, the fall of 2011, spring of 2012, with the Russian uh, Duma elections and then the presidential election. Um, Previous crises in the bilateral relationship have always been followed by uh, resets. For example, the crisis in the relationship over Kosovo in the late 90s was followed by the post-9-11 reset between uh, Putin and, and President Bush. The crisis in the relationship over the war in Georgia in 2008 was followed by the 2009 Obama reset. What's preventing a reset in the relationship now, uh, and how do you see the relationship developing over the next several years? I think, Bob, that the uh, Ukraine invasion, uh, the both the invasion and annexation of Crimea, as well as uh, sending in the troops, uh, the little green men, as they were called at the time, into the Donbass, eastern parts of Ukraine. This was qualitatively another completely different step than what we'd had before. Uh, I think the key part of this was that uh, not just the illegal annexation of Crimea, uh, but I think the precedent that it set 
uh, or shall we say maybe going back to precedents that had been set back in the, the worst days of European history. You know, I remember talking to Europeans, and while we Americans were quite upset, most of my European friends saw what the Russians did in, in taking land back by force from another country as going back in history. The whole EU and NATO are designed to try to stabilize borders, to try to stabilize the political system, to resolve problems through dialogue. And what the Russians did basically was say, we're going back backwards and in a kind of revanchist effort, take Crimea. Uh, you'll remember that uh, Khrushchev gave uh, Crimea back to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in 1954. A lot of Russians didn't believe that, and they would argue that, uh, hey, we have every right to do this. Well, you know, if you start taking back pieces of territory, we, you know, those of us who know European history know that you could shave off little chunks all over the place and, and all of the different places that have been fought over and exchanged for years. So this is really not just about Russia and Ukraine. This is about upending the entire European order. And I think once you've done that, and if you don't change it and resolve it, then, you know, we have what we have, which is this uh, standoff at this point. Now, I would add that I spent some time with uh, Ambassador Toria Newland when uh, I was ambassador. She had talks uh, frequently with uh, uh, Mr. Surkov, one of President uh, Putin's closest advisors about Ukraine. And they got into a considerable level of detail in trying to figure out how to implement the what are called the Minsk Accords, the agreement that Putin and, and uh, Poroshenko, the president of Ukraine, uh, as well as Chancellor Merkel and President, uh, the president of France had agreed to. Uh, they didn't get anywhere uh, in the end. Uh, and Kurt Volker, Ambassador Kurt Volker, has been pursuing it since then, and again, hasn't gotten very far uh, in trying to sort this out. And the fundamental reason is that on the Russian side, they don't want to solve the problem yet. Now, whether they will be able to do that or not, I don't know. I spent three years in Russia arguing privately and publicly that if we wanted to get this relationship back together, we had to address this fundamental problem, which was an illegal breaking of all of the rules that uh, had pertained in Europe since the end of the Second World War. It seems like in the, in the Ukraine crisis, Crimea really is the sticking point, right? That, that it seems like there's an agreement uh, available in eastern Ukraine. It might involve uh, uh, some devolution of power from the center, uh, but, but Ukraine taking, preserving Ukraine inside of its internationally recognized borders. How do you get around the problem of Crimea, where the Ukraine and the West can never acknowledge Russia's annexation, uh, and uh, Russia does not seem to be willing to even discuss reversing the annexation. During the Obama administration, when I was working on this, and I, I spent uh, the first nine months of the Trump administration before I left as ambassador, we made it very clear to the Russian side that what we really wanted to focus on as a starting point was getting Russian withdrawal and implementation of this Minsk Accord in Donetsk and Lugansk mm. uh, oblasts. And that we were prepared, if we could find a way to implement that and set up all of the different parameters, uh, monitoring, uh, new elections, there's a whole series of things that are embodied in the Minsk Accords, that that would, if we could get to that to a satisfactory level, we would be prepared even to lift some of the sanctions. And we made that very, very clear to the Russian side. But they were not prepared to even take that step. Crimea was 
was always in that time, and I think continues under the Trump administration, to be a separate case. Mm. You know, we know that Putin, and Putin has made it very clear publicly and privately to us and to the Europeans, that, you know, Crimea is now and forever going to be a part of Russia. Um, I don't think that that's the final solution, but I'm not sure uh, we're going to get that sorted out anytime soon. So the key thing is to get a start. And both the Obama and I think Trump administrations have been both very, very pragmatic about that, working closely with the French and the Germans who are the main negotiators uh, with Russia and Ukraine on this. So I'd like to move now to Russia's internal political, social, and economic development. As you know, Putin's approval rating has fallen from about 82 uh, percent in April of last year to 66 percent by the end of the year, uh, largely due to discontent over pension reforms and the sustained economic slowdown in Russia. Uh, although these are approval ratings most Western politicians would envy, Putin's approval ratings haven't been this low since early 2014, 2014 just before the Russian seizure of Crimea. So what do these numbers tell us, and what can we expect Putin to do to shore them up? My friend uh, Anders Osland, who is a uh, prominent economist uh, who f covers both Russia and Ukraine, uh, says that Putin has broken the social contract that he had, the implicit social contract he had with the Russian people. And by that, he means that with raising the pension age, the guarantee that the Russians would have of not only a decent economic life today, but also, even after they retire, uh, no longer exists. Uh, you know as well as I that the Russians can be very, very cynical. And I think there's a lot of them who, when they raised the, uh, the male age to 65, and I think the, the current uh, life expectancy for males in Russia is like 65 or 66, what that said to them was, hey, good chance I'm not even going to be alive to get any of this pension. <laughs> and then the even deeper cynics would say, hey, even if I get, live long enough, are they really going to? Is the money really going to be there for me to do? And so I think the skepticism has grown, and it's resulted in this drop in the percentage of uh, uh, people who is supporting Putin. I would add one other point. Even before I left, Russians were calling this uh, late Putin period, uh, using the Russian word zastoy, mm -hmm. which which means uh, stagnation. And it's very famous in Russia because that was the name of the period uh, from the time Brezhnev in the early 80s then gave way to Andropov and Chernyenko and finally Gorbachev was elected. That was, when you say Zastoy, that's what they all think about. Now, and I mean, even two years ago or a year and a half ago when I was there, they were using this to describe no change, no real economic reform. Uh, sanctions are having a bite into the economy and life of people. Now the pension age has been raised. There's a lot of unease inside the society, and that's being reflected in uh, not just in the polls, but you know they even tried to organize elections to governors out in the Far East, and those failed, and they tried to redo them, and they still failed. Right. So there's a lot of frustration and anger below the surface in Russia, and I think the Russian uh, government is trying to deal with that, it's something that we're all obviously paying close attention to. Sure. So um, finally, I'd like to ask you about Russia's future. So what do you see as Russia's future? The question that's often asked whether Russia can ever truly become a member of the West, a member of the Euro-Atlantic community, uh, 
Do you see that as a possibility? Or alternatively, is there another foreign policy trajectory that leads in a more Eastern or Eurasian direction available to Russia? Or I've often also heard people say that uh, without reform, Russia is destined to become uh, kind of an unreformed periphery to a, a, a consolidated Euro-Atlantic economic bloc and an emerging Asia-Pacific economic bloc, that Russia would remain a backwater between those. Uh, which of those futures do you see as most likely for Russia? I think the answer, Bob, is that all of them are a possibility. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it depends on you know, what the future leadership is. And what I'm talking about is after Mr. Putin. Um, you know, he's still in his, now in his fourth term, and we don't know whether he'll try to find a way to stay on even longer or whether he will. this will be the end and they'll make a transition to somebody. But I know one of the other things that we looked at very closely at the embassy was all the different kinds of groups inside of Russia. I've talked about the young people. But you have inside the Russian bureaucracy, not only uh, uh bureaucrats of the working at different ministries, but military officers, the intelligence community, the FSB, the now the, uh, the successor to the KGB. These people are all very, very strong. And I think what's going to happen is that there'll be something of a uh, struggle, uh, not necessarily violent struggle, mm -hmm. but there'll be a political struggle uh, for the future of Russia along those lines that you mentioned before, the different uh, alternatives. I believe that Russia still needs to be a part of the West. Uh, you can look at their, uh, their trade with Europe and the, uh, not so much the United States. We don't have very large amounts. But the huge preponderance of their trade is, is still with, uh, with uh, Western Europe. And they need to do that. There's also intense interest in Russia uh, in everything that deals with the West, whether it's music or culture or films, you name it. Under President Putin, especially since sanctions were imposed after the Ukraine invasion, you've had a, a strong push to try to develop relations with the chi not just China and Japan, but even the, the, uh, the young tigers of Southeast Asia, just as we are doing in Vietnam and Thailand and those areas. I think the Chinese-Russian relationship is going to be a critical one here. Right now, it's being driven as much by anything by the personal connections between President Putin and President Xi in China. Whether that will continue, uh, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember Russian and Chinese troops fighting with each other on the Amur River out in Siberia, eastern and eastern part of Russia, uh, during my lifetime. So things can change very, very quickly. Uh, I think, our, as again, our position should be to maintain open, to stay engaged with Russia, when the opportunity comes to hopefully solve the problems in Ukraine and others, we should be prepared to move forward on those, but on the basis of uh, our own interests and, and decisions that we would like to see taken. But we should also understand that, uh, that Russia, a lot of Russians, are going to try to build that relationship with, with the East. Now, if it's trade, that's one thing. If it's military, and I was reading just this morning, the statements by our uh, intelligence chiefs yesterday before the Congress, they see the relationship between China and Russia as the closest that it's been in decades. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is something that they and we should worry about. But I think what we can do is to try to remain engaged, uh, not give up our principles, insist on maintaining or restoring the international security environment, and then trying to build uh, our own business, our own ties. There's lots of Russians who have come to the States since 1991 
you know, we've sent like 85,000 Russians to the United States in various exchange programs. Thousands of Americans have gone there. We need to continue to nurture those kinds of uh, relationships, those people-to-people relationships as well. Ambassador Tiff, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. We're fortunate to have heard from the person who's really the dean of the Russia and Eurasia experts in the U.S. Foreign Service. You've given us plenty to think about and some great advice on how to manage perhaps America's most challenging but important bilateral relationship. Thank you, sir. Thanks very much, Bob. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.